I'm going to share with you tonight the most challenging message that I've ever shared. When the Lord gave me this revelation, I went and sat with my mentor, and uh, he lives about three hours from me. And I, and I shared it with him privately, and I said, did I get this right? And he said, yes. He said, what are you going to do with that? And I spent three months repenting before God for what the, the revelation of grace that he showed me. I repented for how I'd taken his grace for granted. I repented for moving away from it when how I dealt with people. See, my background was very hard, very legalistic, very staunch, very, man, you mess up once and you're done. And, um, and, and that's not Jesus. And, and when, I, when I got this revelation, it took me three months to kind of work it out inside of me. So I say that to say this. I don't expect you to be able to work it out inside of you in 40 minutes. But I want to start us on a journey tonight. And, and hopefully you'll hear one thing, two things, three things tonight that, that will inspire you. To, one thing Paul said in his writings, he said, it's Jesus we preach. And tonight I want to preach Jesus to you. Um, I, I really focused on, on the regeneration of the spirit this morning. Tonight I want to talk about your soul. And, and, and Tuesday night I'm, I think I'm going to talk about the healing of our bodies. But, but tonight, I just, want you to give me your, I just want you to give me your attention for the next few minutes. And I want you to open up your heart and open up your mind and just, and just say, Lord, whatever you're trying to speak to me now, you know, whatever I need to throw away, just throw it away. But whatever is for my life here now today, I want to I open my heart and I want to apply it as you want me to. Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now, we're going to say some words tonight, so same rules apply tonight as this morning. When we repeat things, we repent things with gusto, okay? So I want everybody to say this with me. For they were fishermen. Go. For they were fishermen. Now, that's going to come back later. It says, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once. Everybody say at once. They left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. And then if you just flip over a few pages to Mark chapter 2. It's the very next book in the Bible. Mark chapter 2. Verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, you have this incredible phenomenon that we tend to read over because we know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, it's kind of easy to work out the beginning of the story. But if we wait, if we step back and say, wait a minute, what if we didn't know the end of the story? Like what we've just seen is Jesus convincing men who have families, wives, children, land, homes, jobs, boats. He's convincing them on the sales pitch of two words to leave everything they knew and follow him. Everything they know. He's convincing men. Now, you think, okay, the first two, maybe they were just down on their luck. They were having a midlife crisis and they wanted to, okay, but then he goes four for four and then five for five and then six for six. And he ends up going 12 for 12, convincing men with wives, children, land, homes, jobs, boats. He's convincing them to leave everything and follow him. Now, it's one thing for a man to leave his wife. It's a whole different deal when he leaves his boat. 
<clears throat> That's serious. Like, I'm just kidding. It, like, he's... He's 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 convincing these men to leave everything they know. Can you imagine going home? Can you imagine Zebedee? He, he says, Simon, Andrew, follow me immediately. They're they're leaving their jobs with no notice, no promise on how to make money. No, no claims of fame, no promises that 2000 years from now, there'd be huge buildings in Europe named after you. Like like no anything. Just two words. Follow me. And then James and John, son of Zebedee, they do the same thing. Like, what was Zebedee thinking? His whole workforce just quit with no notice. Imagine Zebedee going home that night to his wife trying to explain that the sons have left home to follow a guy. Interesting. And he goes 12 for 12 with this. There's got to be something else going on. And when the Lord began to show me what was going on, it changed my life. This is what was going on. Every Hebrew boy longed to be a rabbi. They longed to be a rabbi. It was like the highest calling. It was like the coolest thing. It was like the best of the best. It's kind of like in New Zealand. How many, how many boys grow up wanting to play rugby? Most of them. But, but how many of them actually one day get to play for the All Blacks? Not very many. Only, I don't know how many of you are on the team, but not many. <laughs> I'm American, man. A. Okay. So, so, but at the end of the day, so it, when a boy starts out playing rugby, he starts out playing and then he goes to the next league and the next league and the next league and the next league and the next league. But at some point, 99.9% of all boys are told, I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes to go to the next level. You're going to have to go earn a living somewhere else. You just don't have the skill. You don't have the size. You don't have the speed. You don't have something. Something is missing. You don't have what it takes to play at the next level. And it was the same way with rabbinical stuff. Every boy wanted to be a rabbi, but at some point, 99% of them were told, I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes to be in ministry. At the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. And here's how they started to weed them out. You had to memorize Leviticus by age six. Now, this is something else, because not every home had scripture. They read scripture community. So you had to memorize Leviticus based on your father's memorization of Leviticus and him quoting it to you. Which is a whole other message. So if you memorize Leviticus, you graduated when you, by, it, when you were six, you graduated to what was called the Bet Safar. Can you say that with me with gusto? Go. Bet Safar. Say it one more time. Bet Safar. Now that's just as Hebrew for means, it means the school of the book. And in the Bet Safar, it lasted from 6 to 12. And from 6 to 12, they were in the Bet Safar and they memorized the whole Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would memorize it word for word, backwards and forwards. They memorized the whole thing. Now, when they were 12 years old, they graduated from the Bet Safar. And they did that by having a Torah exam with the teachers of the law that day. And in their Torah exam, they weren't graded on whether they knew the answers to questions. They were graded on whether or not they asked the right questions. Remember when Jesus, it says in Luke, it says when Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Hebrew scholars were not noted for their answers. They weren't noted for coming to a destination. They weren't noted for putting a theology into a system of bullet points. They were noted for their ability to keep the discussion about God going longer. They were noted for their ability to ask the right questions. And you've got to be far smarter to ask the right question than to have the right answer. Like, how many of you know somebody who knows it all? That's easy. 
But how many of you know someone who's smart enough to know the right questions to ask? That's far more difficult. Hebrew people lead with questions, which, by the way, you can, I can tell everything I want to know about you by the questions you ask and the stories you tell. Everything. Questions reveal values and questions reinforce values. You, if you say to your child, all I want you to do is do your best, but then they come home and the only question you ask is, what grade did you make? What do they assume is important? The grade. So they would, they would, if, they, if they wowed the teachers of the law with their questions, they graduated into what was called the Bet Talmud. Can you say that with me? Bet Talmud. Say it again. Bet Talmud. Now, Bet Talmud just means the school of disciples. The Talmud is the word for disciple. It's like discipleship school. If you didn't wow the teachers of the law with your questions, which was most of them, they were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Now go back and earn a living at your family trade. I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. Now go back and earn a living at your family trade. If they got too far behind in their memorization of the Torah, I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. I'm sorry, you're just disqualified. You're a good guy, you, you just, but you just don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. But if the best of the best of the best of the best, the ones that were wowing the teachers of the law with their questions, they graduated to the Bet Talmud. Now the Bet Talmud, we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but it was 18 years long. 18 years long, from 12 to 30. 12 to 30, they were in the Bet Talmud. Five stages. Has anybody ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30? And he comes out and everybody's calling him rabbi? He's in the Bet Talmud. It was 12 to 30. Five stages. And without going through them all, you would go through stage one and you would have an exam. If you passed your exam, you got to go to stage Two. Yeah, very good. If you weren't, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Now go back and earn a living at your family trade. You go through stage two, and if you graduated from stage two, you got to go to stage Oh, that's brilliant. If you weren't, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. If, if you go through stage three and you graduate, you get to go to stage If not, you're told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. If you get through stage four, you get to go to stage five. If not, you're disqualified. Now, stage five is where I want to park for a second. Stage five was, was called Shmika. You know, let's try that in like some semblance of unity. Shmika. Let's try it one more time. Shmika. Now, you want to have a little Jewish style? You want to have a little Jewish? Here we go. Ready? Everybody go. Shmika. Oh, very good. Very good. <clears throat> it's really not there. And if anybody here knows Hebrew, you'll know it's not there. I'm just kind of kidding around and trying to get a good, but, but it sounds good. You sound good doing it. Everybody, let's try that again. There was Shmika. Okay, very good. Now, Shmika was the, was the point in rabbi school where they determined there was only two types of rabbis. There was rabbis with Shmika and there was rabbis without Shmika. Shmika was their word for rabbinical authority. Okay? So there was only rabbis with authority, and there was rabbis without authority. There was only two types of rabbis. Now, this is so important. A rabbi's Torah interpretation, a rabbi's interpretation of Scripture or his way of life was called his yoke. Remember when Jesus said, take... My yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The key to understanding that is the word my. For him to say my yoke, he had to have authority. Because this was the difference. 
You spent 18 years learning the yoke of a rabbi. 18 years. 18 years in the Bet Tel Mid, you spent sitting at a, a rabbi's feet saying, teach me your yoke. And you were in charge. When you became a rabbi, you were in charge of taking that rabbi's yoke to the next generation. And if we could all graduate, we graduated and 99.9% of all rabbis did not have authority. They did not have shmika. Only the select of select. Sometimes they could go two and three generations without any rabbis with shmika. So what would happen is, is a rabbi without authority, they were still a rabbi, but they had to teach the yoke of their rabbi. They had to teach the yoke of their rabbi. But a rabbi with shmika could make up his own yoke. Now, this is how they determined if a rabbi had authority or not. At your baptism, when you graduated from rabbi school, they would baptize you because they baptized you any time you changed social status. Specifically, if you went from unclean to clean, they would baptize you to declare you can be touched now without contaminating people. Okay, so so this was this is why we get baptized today. It is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But bigger than that, it is publicly declaring I was once unclean and now I am clean. But if you went from non rabbi to rabbi, they would baptize you. Now we've got to decide who has shmika and who doesn't. Here's how they decided that you had to have two verbal witnesses at your baptism. You had to have two people speak out for you at your baptism, basically an ordination. So Jesus, remember, it says when Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. So Jesus is graduating from rabbi school. He goes into the water and John says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Witness one. John baptizes him. And Jesus comes up out of the water and he's a regular rabbi without authority until a second voice speaks. And the second voice came from heaven. And it says, and the whole of the crowd heard it. So now Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He's a rabbi with Shmika. And he spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. This followed him his whole life. How many times did they say, you do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. Didn't mean he was screaming. It meant we've never heard a yoke like this before. You must have authority to teach this yoke, because if you don't, you don't have any rights to teach this yoke. Where did you get your authority from? And what did he say from the same authority John the Baptist had? Why? Because John the Baptist was the one that witnessed him. See? So, so now Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He's a rabbi with authority. Now, the first thing a rabbi would do is he had to have disciples. Because a rabbi without disciples was not a rabbi. Okay? So where would you get your disciples from? From the Bet Talmud, the school of the disciples. So the rabbi would go back to the Bet Talmud and he would walk through the Bet Talmud. And this is how he did it. It's really cool. He'd walk through the Bet Talmud and he would look for the right student. 
And the question wasn't whether or not the student knew the word. Remember, everybody in the Bet Talmud had memorized the Torah and had wowed the teachers of the law with their questions. It wasn't a, a matter of competency or knowing the word. The rabbi would walk through the Bet Talmud with one question. Do I believe that he can do even greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed that the student could do even greater things than him, he would ordain him as a, as a disciple of, of, in his rabbi school with two words. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them only heard, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes. You're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes. But every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. Fast forward, Jesus has got to get him some disciples. Now, you would think him being a rabbi with authority, he would go get the best students from rabbi school. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He goes to the banks of a lake and he finds some fishermen. He says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. These guys had longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me their whole life. But they heard, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. The fact that they were fishermen meant what? That they had been disqualified. The yoke of our rabbi chooses men that other people say are disqualified from ministry to change the world. That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's why men were jumping out of boats. The yoke of our rabbi is so cool. He goes and he gets James and John. So he gets four fishermen, four people who've been disqualified from ministry, four people who the religious leaders say, you don't have what it takes Four people. And he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. I want to teach you my yoke. I want you to carry my yoke to the next generation. But who was the fifth disciple? Matthew. Where did he find Matthew? At a tax collector's booth. Where? By the lake. Well, if you're sitting at a tax collector's booth by the lake, what are you taxing? Fish. So Jesus says, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, we're going to find out right now. Are you willing to forgive and face your issues with the man who's been robbing food off your family's table for years? That's the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi says that you face the people who've hurt you with honesty and sincerity and you forgive them and you move on. That's the yoke of our rabbi. You want to hear something cool? One of the things they would do is they wanted it when you decided to join a rabbi's tutelage. It wasn't just it wasn't just you wanted to know what he knew. You wanted to be what he was. You wanted to take on his whole life. You wanted to treat people like he treated people. You wanted to have a philosophy of marriage and children and giving and all this stuff. You wanted to be what he was. They even wanted to walk like their rabbi. So one of the things they would do is the rabbi would teach them to walk like him. And how they would do that is they'd line them up and they'd tie a rope around their neck. One rope around And the rabbi would hold the rope and he'd walk in front of them. And they would train walking behind the rabbi with the rope. And when they learned to walk behind the rabbi with a rope around their neck, they were said to be walking in what was called ehad, which is translated one accord. 
Then he would take the rope off of their neck and he would learn, they would learn to walk behind their rabbi without the rope. And what rabbinical tradition says, this is not in the Bible, but you will recognize it. What rabbinical tradition says is that as they were learning to walk behind their rabbi, if only one student got out of line, the rabbi would stop the whole line to get the one back in. And the kingdom of God is like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. And one got away and he left the 99 to get the one. That's the yoke of our rabbi. So he took these guys and he was teaching them a new yoke, a new way of life. And here we sit in 2007 in New Zealand and we say we're disciples of Jesus Christ, which means that we are carriers of his yoke. And I looked at the yoke of Jesus and I realized I needed to repent. There's this one place where this lady gets caught in the act of adultery. Like in John 8, in the act. Like in the act. It's kind of embarrassing. Now, you guys are good enough Bible students to know, the Torah says, what do you do with such a person? Stone them. The Mishnah, which was like another book that they honored, said that you could beat her up, you could strip her from the waist up, and bring her out in public to humiliate her and then stone her. So if they followed their culture, they would have beat her up, they would have drug her out, they would have stripped her from the waist up, which probably wasn't necessary because they caught her in the act. And they drag her to the feet of Jesus. And they throw her at his feet. And they say, Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Essentially, what does your yoke say about this? Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone her? No, but does Jesus have to follow the law? Yes. So Jesus is in a conundrum. He says, okay. He says, my yoke says stone her. The Torah says to stone her. So my yoke says stone her. But my yoke also says that you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. (laughs) He's brilliant. So it says they're all holding their stones and they don't know what to do. So they just drop it. And they now why did they bring her to Jesus? Because they needed someone with. Mm. So they all drop their stones and they leave one at a time. And it's very important. It says Jesus doesn't speak until they've all left. After they've all left, there's this lady, topless, beaten up, ashamed, laying probably in the fetal position, covering her head, waiting on the stones to come. And Jesus gets her attention and he says, he says, lady, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she says, they've all left. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said stoner. But the Torah also says that you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away. So he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declared a mistrial. Mm. That's the yoke of our rabbi. Which is why there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, whose yoke are you under? Jesus's. It's not that you don't sin. It's just that according to the yoke of our rabbi, there will never be enough witnesses to condemn you. Hmm. 
then I had to ask myself this question. Could my yoke say what his yoke said? And it couldn't. It couldn't. He looked at a lady who was caught in the act of adultery. And he was able with compassion to say, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And my yoke, the yoke of my denomination, said you ostracize them. Cut them off. That's it. That was the yoke of my denomination. But it was not the yoke of my rabbi. And I had to repent. Could your yoke say that? What would your yoke say? There's this one place where this guy was hanging on a cross. And Jesus had had a really bad day. They had arrested him in the middle of the night, put all these false charges on him. And remember at Jesus' trial, they couldn't get two people to agree, which is really interesting. Jesus saved the woman by getting them to have two people who couldn't agree. And then Jesus, they couldn't, they couldn't convict him because they couldn't get two witnesses to say the same thing. And, and, but they end up putting together these lies, and they end up beating him with this beating that seven out of ten people would have been killed from. They put a crown of thorn on his head. They slap him, gossip about him. They spit on him. All of his 12 best friends leave him. This is just a really bad day. We call it Good Friday. It was a bad day. And even in the middle of all this, even in the middle of all this, Jesus is hanging on a cross after nails have been shoved through his wrist and his feet. And he knows he's going to die. Jesus is hanging on a cross and he still has enough wherewithal. There's this guy next to him who says three words. Please remember me. And Jesus said, that's enough for me. You can go to heaven. That's the yoke of our rabbi. He said, and while we're at it, let's forgive the people at the foot of the cross too. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Ah, that's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of our rabbi. Like the yoke of our rabbi was so full of compassion and grace and slow to anger and abounding in love. Like, and it was even, it was even present in the Old Testament. There was this guy named Moses who was a premeditated murderer. If you look at Hebrews 11, don't turn there, but it's called the Hall of Faith. That's what we call it. It's like these heroes of the faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. If you look at that list of names, they were all messed up beyond all recognition. By faith, Abraham, hero of the faith, he gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. Can you imagine if CNN and the Internet would have been around back then? All the Christians would have been saying, I don't even think he's saved. How can he be saved and do stuff like that? Isaac did something very similar. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that in seeing no one. I hit the man. I killed the man and hit him in the sand. The problem was the next day the sand shifted and you got his leg sticking up out of the air. God looked down and said, you'll do. I'll use you to write the Bible. Hmm. Hmm. Where, where my yoke, my yoke, my yoke, the yoke of my denomination said, you take a premeditated murderer, you cut up. They're disqualified. God says, no, no, no. The yoke of the rabbi gets in there and with grace restores their life and uses them to write the very Bible we preach from. Hmm. By faith, Samson. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. Hero of the faith. Why? 
Because when God steps in on a person's life, he restores their life. Mm. David, we all know his story. He had 700 women. 700. Solomon had a thousand and God said, I'll use you to write the book on wisdom. (laughs) David had 700 women and still went and got the one he couldn't have. Committed adultery and premeditated murder, but he didn't just murder one man. The Bible says that 18 men lost their lives that day with him trying to kill one. He killed 18 men in one day trying to cover up a sin. And then he ended up, he ended up getting the way, he got the woman pregnant. He kills 18 men trying to cover up that sin and he ends up marrying her. If CNN and the internet are around back then, what would your yoke have said? My yoke says you cut him off. It did. Nope, that's it. Do you realize there's denominations in the world today that according to their bylaws would not let David preach if he was available next Sunday? Because of what he did in his past? In other words, God restored David and used him to write the Bible. But we think we're good enough to say you're not good enough to preach what God said you could write? Hmm. And I sat in my room and I became broken. Because I realized that my yoke was different than the yoke of my rabbi. That I said I was a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you've got to understand that Hebraically, Hebraically, you're only a disciple of the rabbi whose yoke you follow. How many times did Jesus say, they will know you're my disciple by keeping my commands? The yoke of our rabbi. Like, there's this one place where this guy named Peter denies him three times in open court and cursed his name so bad that the Roman soldiers blushed. And five days later, five days later, Jesus is cooking breakfast for him on the beach and didn't even bring the sin up. He just said, do you love me? That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of our rabbi. There's this one place. Where where Jesus, he visits this prostitute. He was between customers. And he visits this prostitute. And this Pharisee was following around and thought to himself, this man can't be the Messiah because he should know that this woman is unclean. What's he thinking about being the guest of a sinner? And then it gets worse because the lady bends down and cries on Jesus' feet and takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee says, I can't believe this. And it says that Jesus, knowing his thought, looked at him and said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi took all 12 men who deserted him Well, 11. Took the 11 out of the 12 men, one killed himself. But took 11 out of the 12 men who deserted him and restored them the next week to ministry because he believed in them that much. That's the yoke of our rabbi. There's this one place. 
where it says that Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi. This is in Matthew chapter 16. It says that Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi. And the interesting part of Caesarea Philippi was that it was the headquarters to the goat god Pan. The headquarters to the goat god Pan. And so in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, there was this mountain. And they built the temple to the goat god Pan at the top of this mountain because they wanted the temple to the goat god Pan to be at the highest point of the city. And when they built the temple to the goat god Pan, it cracked the mountain. So from the top of the mountain all the way down to the road, and then it cracked the road. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there was steam coming up from the crack in the road. And the people of Caesarea Philippi believed that it was the entrance and the exit to hell. And they believed that if you didn't worship Pan properly, he would open up the gate of hell and swallow you into it. The problem was is that Pan was a goat god and he received worship through intimate acts with goats. And so 24 hours a day, there was people all around on the public street being intimate with goats in worship to Pan. Jesus took his youth group there. And he says, look around. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says something like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. In other words, Jesus is looking at the gate of hell and standing over it saying, bring it on. That's the yoke of our rabbi. Like, there's a, like when they were learning to walk behind their rabbi, the, the best student of the day got to be the line leader. And as they were walking behind their rabbi, they wore these special, the rabbis wore these shoes with these flaps. And, and it was a dusty region. And so the best student of the day was the one walking the closest behind them. You could always tell who the best student of the day was by the one who got covered in the dust of their rabbi. They would get covered from their waist down in the dust of their rabbi. But when they went back to the temple, it wasn't dust you wanted to wash off. It was dust you wanted to show off because it meant you were the best student of the day. So you go back to the temple and be like, (laughs) see, it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Remember, there was this one place where it says Jesus couldn't do any miracles. So he taught them to shake the dust off their feet. He wasn't telling them to curse anybody. He was saying, bless them with the best blessing you can give them. It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. See, we've defined sin so poorly. We define sin as bad things that we do. And it is. Sin is bad things that we do. But sin is far bigger than that. Sin is anything that isn't perfect. It's anything that isn't perfect. Paul said that we were given the law so we would know what sin is. If you read Leviticus, you'll find that it's a sin to have dandruff. Look at your neighbor and see if they're sinning. No, ma'am, he's bald. He's bald, don't you? 
It, it was a sin to wear eyeglasses. Hmm. It was a sin to have a period. Hmm. It was a sin to give birth. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, it says, After a woman has given birth, she must bring a sin offering to make atonement for her loss of blood. Hmm. Why? Because you were never intended to have hard labor in childbirth. That was a result of sin. And anything that's a result of sin was sin. What's the point of all that? The point is, is that we need a savior. That we can't live it. And here's the problem, is that sin was very contagious. There was two words. There was tame and there was tehor. Tame meant unclean. Tehor meant clean. And the problem with unclean was it was very contagious. So if somebody here had dandruff, all I had to do was touch them and I would be tame. If, if a lady here was, was, was um, on her period, all I would have to do is touch her and I would be tame. Like, what did you do back then? Wear a sign? Like, it made you unclean if you touched furniture where a husband and wife had been intimate in the last three days. Like, what did what, you do? Put a sign up? I was teaching this in a pastor's home one time, and he made everybody get off the couch. And he was like 78. See, the yoke of our rabbi, the yoke of our rabbi comes in and cleansed us from all uncleanness. There's one writer that says, if we admit that we're sinful, if we confess our sins, you know, it says this, it says, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess that we're sinful, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our uncleanness. See, God, say, see, the Hebrew language was originally pictures. It wasn't letters. It was pictures. And the Hebrew word for iniquity was Avon, like the makeup company, Avon. <laughs> you can hear the old school Pentecostals now. See, I told you. I told you, Mildred, even the word for makeup was sin. <laughs> by God, I'm telling you now. That boy's preaching now, by God, he's preaching. Avon, three letters, A, V, and N, or Ein in Hebrew, Ein, Vav, and Nun, three letters. The way they wrote an Ein was an I. The way they wrote a Vav was a hook. And the way they wrote a Nun was fish that were multiplying. So one fish became two, became four, became eight. It looked like that. So when a Hebrew person read the word iniquity, they read whatever your I hooks to multiplies. Hmm. See, there's, there, there's three levels to sin in the Hebrew people. There was iniquity, sin, and transgression. Iniquity was when your eye hooked to something and it multiplied. Sin was when you're drawn away by your own lust and enticed. So if my eye gets hooked to that jacket, I just, oh, I want that jacket. I desire that jacket. It builds a lust inside of me for that jacket. Now, once I'm drawn away by my own lust and enticed, now I'm sinning. Transgression, which is the third level, is actually when I take it. The Bible says 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the Avon of us all. In other words, God doesn't just forgive you for what you've done. God forgives you all the way back to where your eye hooked to the wrong thing. That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox. Don't anybody take me on. You'll win. I'm not mean enough to fight. I haven't hit anybody in 16 years. But I was quite good at one point. And when I, when I thought about Jesus standing over the gates of hell and saying, not even the gates of hell will, will, will prevail against it. In other words, bring it on. Our yoke is so good that not even this can win. I used to kick box. I actually got to fight in the U.S. Open one year. And I had these huge trophies, like huge. I won the Southeastern Regionals two years in a row. Got invited to the U.S. Open three times in a row. Got invited to the World Championships once. And I had these huge trophies. And all the neighborhood kids were at my house, and they were looking at my trophies. And this guy came over. His name was Kenneth. And Kenneth was one of these kids that was about my size in the eighth grade. Like this guy was shaving in the fourth grade sort of guy. And he walks in. And in front of everybody, he goes, Shane Willard, I think I could whoop you. I said, I think you're right. He says, come on, let's fight. I said, I'm not fighting you. You're twice my size. I'm not stupid. He said, he said, I bought boxing gloves. I said, oh, boxing gloves, let's go. Because I knew if we put boxing gloves on, he couldn't grab me. So we go outside. And all the friends, all of our friends made this boxing ring. And they're standing around it in this fight, 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 fight. So I get in the ring with this guy. And I beat him to death. I'm talking, he couldn't touch me. I was too quick for him. Just pop, pop, pop. I wasn't hurting him. I just, he just couldn't touch me. And he started to get a little bit agitated. And so he finally got mad. And when you get mad, you do stupid things because you become mentally retarded. <laughs> and y'all, he decided he was going to throw a punch to try to knock me out. And let me just show you how fast it came. This is in real speed. Here it is. Ready? Here we go. Ready? <laughs> I actually had time to think. I'll move now. <laughs> he left himself in about this position. So I thought, I'll end this now. And I bent my knees. Y'all, I've never hit a human being as hard as I hit him this day. I came from down here. And it was one of those punches where your hips twisted at just the right moment. And just everything came up. And with all my weight and with everything I had, I hit him right on the base of his chin. His head snapped back. His knees buckled. And he stammered back three paces. Then he caught his balance. And he did like this. And he looked up. And now he was mad. His face turned red. And he looked up at me and he said, Boy, is that all you got? And it was. How many of you know? 
When you take the enemy's best shot and you're still standing, you win. You take somebody's best shot and you're still standing, you win. He won that fight that day because he took my best shot and he took it and stood there and came back at me. And in my heart I said, he just took my best shot. I can't beat him. I can't beat him. One day, they came to get Jesus. And Jesus' way of life was so different. They came to get him. And Peter, who didn't quite get it, he pulled a sword out and he cut the guy's ear off. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He picks the guy's ear back up and puts it back on. He says, Peter, we're not going to live like this anymore. We're not going to live by the sword and we're not going to die by the sword one more day. This issue of always having to win and one up and get my rights and hear my way and all this stuff. No, no, that's not the best way of life. The best way of life is blessed are the peacemakers. And he said, I'm willing to willingly crawl up on a cross and die so that none of us have to live this way anymore. And he did. He took Satan's best shot. He took his best shot. Nine tail, cat of nine tails, lashes, nailed to a cross. You can't do nothing more to somebody than kill them, publicly humiliate them, make a complete spectacle out of them. He sat on that cross and he took all the rejection, all the gossip, all the slander, all the hate, all the anger, every bit of bad thing in the world. He took it. He took Satan's best shot and it killed him. And he descended into hell and he looked at Satan right in the eyes and he said, boy, is that all you got? Because not even the gates of hell can prevail against this yoke. I bless you tonight to know that you follow a rabbi who believes in you more than you believe in him. Hmm. I bless you tonight, but let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. Unless you've been given shmika, which you haven't. I need the musicians. Come on back. Just quietly and everybody kind of stay with me here. Unless you've been given shmika and you haven't, you can't make up your own yoke. Even the parts of Jesus' yoke that don't make any sense. Like in order to be first, you've got to be last. In order to be great, you have to be a servant. In order to get, you've got to give. Even the part of, in order to live, you got to die. Like, even the parts of Jesus' yoke that goes, that's not what my daddy said. That's not what my granddaddy said. That's not what my denomination said. When the Lord showed me this, I sat for three months before I could speak of it, and I repented. I said, God, the yoke of my denomination is not the yoke of my rabbi. I've been taught to be hard on people. Hard on people, man. And the Lord spoke to me and He said this, Shane, you will either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you will be covered in the dust of your own issues. 
And if you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, then you will cover people in the dust of your rabbi. But if you're covered in the dust of your own issues, then you will cover people in the dust of your own issues. And I had stood on stages and I had made people feel guilty. I had put condemnation on them. I had done things that, that, my, my, that my mentor, some of them, had told me it gets good altar calls. That's what you do. But I had ruined people because I did not cover them in the dust of my rabbi. I covered them in the dust of something else. I had to repent. Are you covered in the dust of your rabbi? Or are you covered in the dust of your dad? Are you covered in the dust of past hurts? Are you covered in the dust of anger and resentment? Are you covered in the dust of rebellion? How about your home? Tonight when you go home, husbands, is your house ruled by compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness? Or is your house ruled by your iron fist? Because that's how your dad said you rule the home. Do do you rule your home with the dust of the rabbi? Or do you rule your home by the dust of your own stuff? Like, how about you wives? Is is your house, is your children, or or, or is your behavior towards your children, is it dominated by the yoke of your rabbi? Or is it dominated by the yoke of your own issues? Do you talk to them the same way your mother talked to you? Or do you talk to them how Jesus would? See, Jesus died, listen to me, it's so important. Jesus died not so that just we could go to heaven. Jesus died so that we could have the best life here, now, today. I want everybody to make this word of faith confession after me. Out loud with some gusto, it goes like this. Jesus, your way is the best way for my life. Let's say it again. Jesus, your way is the best way. For my life. Let's pray together.